to our listeners and viewers, I just wanted to mention that on this episode of Beyond the White Coat, we're going to be talking about uh, some difficult issues related to mental health, including suicide. I just want you to be uh, aware of that uh, as you think about uh, joining us. Thank you. to Beyond the White Coat, where we convene authentic conversations between members of the academic medical community, AAMC leaders, other health professionals, and other experts on timely issues. I'm your producer this week, Rachel Bunn. This week, we're talking about the stigma that surrounds mental health care in the medical community and how it can be vitally important to treat patients. As always, I'm joined by our host and CEO, Dr. David Sporton. David, I was Googling you the other day, and I saw on Wikipedia that you actually have a bachelor's degree in psychology. Do you think having that background in psychology affected how you treat your patients? Well, Rachel, I'll tell you the truth. I was very undecided in college. I was an undecided major for two years. I was proud. Uh, I had a t-shirt that said, I'm undecided and I'm proud. And the third year, they forced you to declare a major so that you could continue your registration. And so I picked the most general major that I could think of that had, you know, some parts uh, social sciences, some parts humanities, some parts uh, biological sciences. And that's how, uh, that's how I did it. So as you know, Rachel, I had a, a funny nonlinear career path, and that was the beginning of it. But thanks for trying to make me seem more organized than I really am. We're all disorganized, so <laughs> don't, yeah. Um, but with that, I think this is going to be a really great conversation with our guests about just their backgrounds, their um, careers, and how they are both tackling this issue. So with that, I will introduce our guest this week. We have Dr. Yunyun Chow, who is an assistant professor of Population Health Sciences in the Health Informatics Division of the Department of Population Health Sciences at Weill Cornell Medicine. Joining us too is Dr. Justin Bullock, who is a fellow in nephrology at the University of Washington School of Medicine. We're excited to have both of you join us today. And with that, that David, I'm going to turn it back over to you. Thanks, Rachel. Welcome everybody to another episode of Beyond the White Coat. And uh, Dr. Shao and Dr. Bullock, it's a great honor to have you here today. I'm very excited to talk about this. Why am I excited? Because I've thought for a long time as a doc and just as another person that um, we have a, a, a hill to climb in terms of uh, mental health in the country at large, in the world at large, and in the medicine community. So what I'd like to start out is uh, asking each of you to tell our, our listeners and viewers a little bit about your background and about uh, what you think about that uh, question. Um, how are we doing in the medical community about mental health? Are we doing a good job? Are we missing the mark? Uh, where do you think we are on our collective journey? And Dr. Schalk, we start with you, please. Sure. Uh, thank you, David, for inviting me. 
and um, I am actually my career is also like you is very nonlinear. Um, I actually get very interested in mental health um, during the last year of my undergraduate. And believe it or not, uh, my undergraduate it was majored in political science. And uh, it was, and also I had um, econometrics, like minor degrees. And back to then, I remember like the year one and year two, my dream job is to become an UN ambassador and then to be the lobbyist or to be the negotiations tables and talking about um, like uh, security assemblies and how to help with um, children's living in uh, poverty. Um, but in my last year, I recognized that um, there, when I was preparing my thesis, I find that um, in China, there was like, um, there hasn't been a mental health laws and mental health policies that implemented, and especially for people who were diagnosed with severe mental illnesses when they are sent to the hospitals and afterwards, um, there is no kind of like rehabilitations uh, systems that established. So that got me very interested in how the structural factors, policy factors could be associated with different domains and help with people who are suffering from mental health. So then I, when I'm doing my master's degree, I shifted to the degree of social work, uh, where we are constantly very interested in how community-based social workers and also how social workers can bridge the gap between like the hospitals and individual level of care. And then I got very interested in how to use data to illustrate why it is important because we find that there has been increasing need and demand of like data and data-driven evidence. And um, also right now in this year or so, we have been also seeing a lot of like growth of available data from all sorts of domains, like from the hospitals, from the communities, social terms of health, social media, mobile phones, like passive monitoring, everything can be implemented and also encoded as data. So then when I was doing my PhD, well, and I became a PhD student in social work, but then at that time, I have been really digging into this uh, data science uh, like subject. And that established my field of in linking the data science and social science uh, together to study the social determinants of health regarding this mental health. So that's why I think that this, this episode's topic really attract my uh, interest because um, one of my recent research really finds that um, although we have been advocating for reducing stigma of mental health, and particularly my area in suicide preventions, uh, we haven't done a really good job in terms of reaching out and to do the public awarenesses. Like there are still a lot of stigma and the stigma is also unequally distributed among certain amount of uh, subgroups among the populations, such as the racial and ethnic minorities, immigrants, and as well as today's topics about the healthcare workers. Just two, two weeks ago, we were analyzing the data among people who died by suicide and, and divided by different kinds of essential workers, including the healthcare workers. And we did find that um, 
comparing with non-healthcare workers, healthcare workers um, have like almost like doubled or tr or tripled of this suicide risk and depending on whether they are phys physicians or nurses and both of them are facing um, like like a lot of stigmas and they are not having a high rate of uh, of seeking help and it's um uh, on, uh, in, in the meanwhile we also find that um this population have better access has more access to like medications or drugs and they tend to uh, reduce their stress over that so i think this is a continuous topics and it needs a uh, how uh, holistic solutions to address it so i really look forward to um, talk and this dialogue uh, with you as well as dr bullock thanks so much dr Shaw. dr bullock a little bit about your background if you don't mind and and uh, what you think about where we are um, as a healthcare community regarding mental health. Thank you also, um, David, for inviting me, and thank you, Dr. Xiao, for starting us off. Um, so, first, a little bit about my background. Um, so, I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. Um, I um, went to MIT for college. Um, I'm a former runner, um, kind of competitive runner. I'm still trying to run, but a lot more slowly now. <laughs> Um, and then um, did medical school and residency at UCSF, um, and now I'm a nephrology fellow at the University of Washington. Um, and my um, sort of connection to this topic of, um, of mental illness and suicidality in medicine very much comes from um, my lived experience as someone who lived with bipolar disorder, um, and specifically someone who is visible with bipolar disorder within medicine. Um, and, um, you know, it's something that I've become very passionate about, both because it affects myself very intimately, um, but also, you know, as I've had the opportunity to speak and write and, um, you know, talk and connect with people, um, I find there are so many people within medicine who live with mental illness, and particularly so many of whom do so sort of in the shadows and the darkness, kind of hiding. Um, and I think that relates to my second question, which is, you know, how are we doing within medicine? Um, and I would say my perspective depends on the day. Um, but, um, you know, today I would say, I think we're doing better than we have done in the past, but I think we are very, very far from a place that to me feels um, like a, um, where we should be. Um, and my sort of two intro reasons for why that is is first, I would look at how medicine is doing with mental illness with respect to patients. Um, and, um, you know, I identify as a, both a patient and a provider. Um, and I found that my lived experience with in, within the mental health system is actually one of a lot of trauma of feeling very harmed by the system um, and feeling discouraged for seeking help at times. Um, not always, certainly. Um, I, um, and have, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk more about that as we go. Um, I, th I guess the one point that I make about that is I've had times where I've been hospitalized during training. And on Monday, I was like writing orders for patients and was considered a fully functional human in society. And on Tuesday, I get hospitalized and I lose all agency and all ability to make any decisions about myself. Um, and that's just a very dramatic um, contrast that has not always felt great as a patient. And then the second, I would say, from the lens of the, um, you know, 
as a, as a provider with mental illness, um, I think there is, there are efforts that are being made to try to change our relationship to people who live with mental illness or substance use disorders. Um, you know, I think states are changing the licensure questions. This has been a big thing that people have been very afraid of um, uh, seeking help because they're worried that they might put their license at risk and states are actually changing. Um, um, and so that, to me, that's a one sign that, that things are getting better, but I still think we have a long way to go. Well, thank you, both of you. Just a very, very meaningful, and I, I agree with the general consensus that we've made progress, but we're nowhere as near where we need to be. Dr. Bullock, I want to tell you that I, um, I uh, very much appreciate your sharing your story. I, too, have a history of mental illness, and I'll tell you the, the circumstance under which I decided to walk past the stigma and talk about it publicly, which I, which I do regularly. When I was um, uh, in my tenure as president of Cornell University, which was, unfortunately, I missed Dr. Shaw. I left before she came. But um, when I was there um, on the uh, Ithaca campus, um, we had one year with six uh, student suicides in one year. And uh, it was uh, very, very traumatic for everyone involved, and other students and parents, and you, you, I'm sure you understand. And uh, we decided that um, there was, even in that little microcosm, a very strong stigma against coming to the student health service and asking for help or going to uh, a residence advisor and asking for help. And so uh, a group of us, uh, mostly grad students, and I made little, little brief videos in which we told about our own history with uh, mental illness and counseling. And um, I told them something, I don't remember the exact words, but something like, uh, you know, if it wasn't for going to get help from mental health professionals, I wouldn't be where I am today. I told, every, told people what was wrong. I got help and here I am. I got a pretty good job. I'm your president. And I told them, if you learn one thing at Cornell, learn to ask for help. And so um, I've been uh, very willing to, to share my story as well partly to show that one can overcome it. And Dr. Bullock, nobody could do that more eloquently in my view than you just did. But also, uh, I, uh, I think it's important that the more of us in responsible positions as providers, leaders, bureaucrats, whatever it is that do this, the more everybody will understand that we just can't live in the shadows anymore because that's no way to, to do things better. And one more thing that uh, you both may be aware of, my wonderful predecessor at the AAMC, Dr. Daryl Kirch, a very famous uh, uh, academic psychiatrist, um, had his own lifelong uh, challenges with mental health and wrote a very moving piece in our journal, Academic Medicine. I'm pretty sure it was in 2021. I'm pretty sure. And uh, to our listeners, uh, if you haven't had a chance to read Dr. Kirch's piece, check it out. Look it up. Um, it's, uh, it goes right along with where the conversation is going today. So I thank you both for kicking us off in such a, such a fabulous uh, and very, very important way. So um, staying with the stigma, staying with the stigma topic, um, uh, what ideas do you have, Dr. Shaw, based on data, Dr. Bullock, based on experience uh, and, uh, and, and, and your own academic uh, knowledge? Um, what sort of things should we be doing 
And I'd like to uh, separate, if we could, somewhat artificially, um, during the period of, of training and education, college students, medical students, residents, fellows, and the, the, the practicing physician where uh, state medical boards get involved and so on and so forth. So any thoughts you have about uh, how we could move forward on this is particularly separating the, the, the sort of learner part of our professional lifetimes and then the longer part of our professional lifetimes when all that formal learning is done and we're, and we're, we're, we're practicing whatever it is that we're doing. Dr. Bullock, maybe you'd want to kick us off on this one. Sure. First, I want to share, I want to, I want to express my gratitude for you sharing um, and to acknowledge um, the vulnerability that it takes to be in a position of really significant power and, and, and be open and sharing about your, your own journey and struggle. Um, and I very much believe in the power of disclosure. Um, I've seen myself benefit very deeply from it. I've seen other people benefit from it. Um, you know, I've had many people yeah, connect uh, in various ways. I think one of the narratives that I hope to sort of push within medicine is so many people feel afraid of sharing about their own struggles with mental illness until they've made it. Um, and, um, um, and this, for me, this is important because first honoring the people who have like, you know, who have sort of hidden in the shadows for a long time and then finally, you know, made it to a, a powerful position in some form and then disclose, I think those people sort of hold open the like door for everyone else. Um, and and take the first step, but I think then what's what's lost is like this very like unglamorous journey of struggling with mental illness of like you know just like you're a lowly resident just like on you know on the wards who's suffering, um, and you look at these people who are who've done these amazing things and there's this immense like valley between you and them, um, and 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 I want to push this like. There's so many people who are just walking around doing their normal job, you know, who are still in training, who are, you know, who are regular people um, who live with mental illness. Um, and so first for me, that's one thing is like that it's a common thing. It's not like you don't have to be exceptional for your narrative of mental illness to be worthy. Um, and and I think we we as in society convince ourselves that the only stories that are worthy are those of people who are great. Um, but everyone is great in unique, different ways. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, and the second thing I would say is, I think my journey of mental illness is one of having to deal with my own internal, internalized ableism of the ways that like I learned from society to look at these parts of myself as bad, um, as weak, you know, as less than, and having to become having to really challenge those things. Because something that I found is as I became very visible and I'm someone who I'm visible, I try to be visible about my messiness, about like the parts of Justin that are really like Justin hurting himself, Justin like attempting suicide, Justin like struggling and not, and, um, and, and no one likes to think of their doctor as someone who struggles, 
who is like who maybe is like kind of messy and not like always together every single day of the year um and so there's this really big like actual personal battle and and i feel like you can't you can't fight systems until you've like done that work within yourself because like that that stigma it just comes out like naturally through interactions um and so like part of for me what that looks like is like learning to advocate for the things that i need for myself um and not and having to push against the feeling bad that i'm going to be a burden that i like need support and help um but actually just saying that no i'm a like i have there are many people in the world who have bipolar disorder you know i can give you statistics but like there are a lot of people in the world you know i think some i like two percent is the number that i've heard you know but like so one in 50 people have bipolar disorder um and and our society should be able to like accommodate those people or be supportive of those people um yeah so that's the first portion i'd say those are the kind of um and yeah i'm happy to give more specific like specific actions that one could take and then on the the sort of larger level um i believe that our um sort of systems for supporting people who are um struggling in various ways um, come from a very punitive nature. Um, I believe that there's this default to leave of absence. Um, you know, Dr. Lisa Meeks, who's a big disabilities researcher, she always talks about uh, the default to leave of absence where basically institutions say, you're not doing well, like go leave, go get better. And when you're better, come back and, we, and we'll welcome you. And the problem with this, and sometimes that, that welcoming, whether or not that actually happens, but the problem with this is that one, it doesn't hold any institutional or structural accountability for the ways that the systems might be contributing to a person with mental illness. So for me with bipolar disorder, nights are very, nights are very well documented as um, a cause of sort of mood dysregulation. And um, there is, um, and you know, I disclosed that I have bipolar disorder when I went into training and um, you know, early on until my very last sort of segment of training where I am now, you know, early on, no one ever said, Justin, we know that nights are going to be triggering for you. Here are some alternatives that we can sort of work with you and like that they proactively like do these things. Instead, it's this system where I have to ask for the things that I need as opposed to being offered. And to me, I would say like we work in health systems and they have like healthcare providers who are like creating these systems. So we should know that, um, you know, especially if someone is willing to disclose, you know, whatever like mental health condition they have, um, we should we should proactively be creating offering them solutions um uh, and finally from um the state sort of structural level i think one of the arguments that's often made around um sort of accommodating or supporting people in various ways is this notion that oh like in the real world people can't do that or people that you won't get this in the real world when, when you're out of training you won't get the support you're being coddled when you're during when you're in training um, and what I would say is, if you actually look in practice, people have all sorts of jobs that have all sorts of just like, like uh, natural accommodations. People take jobs that allow them to like be the most well that they can be, or some people do. Um, and so if we, and so I think we create this false fixed mindset that you must be able to like suffer. If you can't tolerate the suffering, then you're not worthy of being a doctor. Um, and, and I think that um, there's no sort of bigger picture structural accountability for institutions to prevent them from doing things like this. Um, yeah. Thank you for that. And um, 
I'm old enough that I remember the days where it was uh, felt to be a badge of courage to be 36 on 12 off, 36 on 12 off, 36 on 12 off. And how clearly I remember uh, whispering a little prayer uh, toward the end of that uh, 12 hours where I couldn't really sleep because I was so anxious. I hope I don't hurt somebody uh, because I'm so, so exhausted. So it's, uh, it's important. And thank you for mentioning the intersectionality between uh, mental illness that we're talking about and, and ableism as a, as a general. And programming note, uh, cheap pitch, um, uh, we do have Dr. Meeks on another episode of Beyond the White Coat. So uh, uh, if everybody would just sign up for Beyond the White Coat and make it the first thing they do every day is listen to it, you would also hear from Dr. Meeks. So thanks, Dr. Bullock. Dr. Shaw, please uh, tell us your thoughts about this. Thank you. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. And uh, I, I really appreciate uh, Dr. Bali of sharing like personal experiences and from and especially like your individual levels of like your how your how you feels like sharing is very important. Um, and I, I, as a researcher, I'd love to maybe share some of this. Um, our research results or maybe from the academic uh, like researchers funding perspective. Yeah. And um, I, especially, um, as I mentioned, that I come up from a background that uh, has integrating different kinds of policies, uh, data-driven uh, analysis to understand mental health, especially suicide prevention disparities. And to to for me, I always think about like for reducing suicide, for reducing the stigma around mental health care. Um, and especially for healthcare, uh, healthcare workers, I think we should really do in a multifaceted approach that in, imagine that there are different circles and from an ecological perspective, then we need to tact, um, count, we, we need to think about the systematic efforts, the community efforts, um, peer efforts, and also narrowing down to the individual efforts. And for example, um, David, you mentioned that um, talking about the from a training per trainees perspective, and then moving to like when when people becomes like uh, graduated and then studies their physicians and nurses of practices jobs, I'm thinking like um, at the trainees perspective, it is not like too late it's never too late to really start the educations about like awarenesses i think educational campaigns in schools uh, and in communities can really be helpful like two weeks ago i just came back from vienna which is this world congress of psychiatrists and their government really supports uh, campaigns about raising awarenesses of like mental health importance mental health stigma and then to open the discussion about mental health because right now um, the, the stigma is really preventing like the societal stigma will prevent people from seeking help so if we can uh, through these campaigns uh, at the society level to normalize these issues and to encourage just sharing these uh, experiences either in person or media or social platforms can really support these understandings. And in Hong Kong, where I previously come from, uh, we also have like, for example, we engage like 
on celebrities even to say there's the open up like you need to open up your uh, your thoughts on your struggles and then to share that actually you are not, never alone and those kind of awarenesses can really encourage like uh, seeking help behavior so that is at the like societal levels, what we can do. And in terms of policies, there are also policies regarding, for example, laws and also like um, like legislations to promote like mental health parities to protect even also individuals with mental health conditions from discriminations, right? And also from uh, also funding uh, for mental health researchers like us to understand how do we design this mental health treatment and services that can better reach uh, the person who may not actually wanted to disclose or we do better in terms of the screening as well. One of our research also finds that for people who are suffering from mental health or especially for suicide intent, some of them are died from the many of the persons died by suicide died by their first attempt and we need to do better in terms of screening and maybe finding out what is the warning signs especially like beyond like mental health maybe people suffering from comorbid uh, physical health that is also a warning sign and in, we should encourage people to uh, we, we should encourage everyone to do the screening of their mental health as well as exactly directly talking about for example asking have you ever think about like cure yourself um, and those kind of words should be really encouraged to to build up this like normalized environment and I also wanted to highlight that um, narrowing it down from a community levels and where everyone right now is actually in the social networks. Like since I was doing my PhD years ago, I was very interested in social network analysis. My thesis was on social network and suicide preventions. And we did find that, um, for example, for children, for, for young adults, their social networks, especially tied to your families, and then to the to the adults like middle adults when they are moving to the workplace uh, having a support group at the workplace can really help like uh, reducing the feelings of isolation and promoting acceptance so peer support uh, is very important and that um, we can see that at Cornell actually uh, I've also engaged in some of these peer support groups that uh, learning that actually the peer support group can not only from a senior to mentors, but also there are people who are in the same rankings, then they can gather in together and to do this, uh, to do group interventions and then to, or no, maybe just to gather in to share what do you feel. So having this uh, peer support and a supportive network is very important. And then if we are further narrowing down to the individual levels, I think for the individual levels is also to enabling them uh, to giving them the tools to seek help and I'm 
during the pandemic, it is a very stressful moment. But from our research, we also find that using like the electronic health records, we find the there are increasing rates of telepsychiatric like uh, like services use. So we find that also after the increase of telepsychiatric services, it actually sustained even after the pandemic. And I think that is um, uh, like a bright side of like right now we have been enabled by the technologies. And so I think that is a good sign that we can uh, utilize these technologies to further enable and to improve the accessibilities of individuals to these tools. And for example, there are also apps that you can do. And also like right now, I think there, instead of just talking about mental illnesses, I think uh, another part is like, especially when we're moving to um, like, um, the, we should move from just talking about mental illnesses to talk about maybe mental wellnesses. And um, I think in terms of mental wellnesses, we also have more and more lifestyle interventions that I have been always wanting to improve, to promote that, for example, exercise, diet, and also medication, med uh, meditations, those sort of tools can also help um, in terms of at the individual levels to improve self-care, especially for healthcare workers, physicians, nurses, they are actually the the ones that caring for the others for the patients but sometimes we are we neglect of caring about ourselves but i think the the languages should be framed at like if the physicians can take care of themselves to emphasize like their self-care actually they are further like helping their patients because if they are happy their patients are also happier and I'd like to end with one of the last points that um, it's, it's also related to a research that we have done about um, shifting the paradigms of emphasize, of studying mental health. There's a um, study we published um, in this uh, in this scientific report saying that actually we have been spending a lot of time of reducing risk factors in terms of suicide interventions. But we we in that study we we flip this kind of like um like normative statement to focusing on protective factors, and then we focusing on the term called flourishing. It's kind of like um, flourishing to help people to learn how to be hopeful, how to in in, in terms of their lifestyles, to talking about how can they thrive and how can they. A flourish uh, even during like a stressful moment. So instead of teaching people how not to die and how not to like uh, suffering from mental illnesses, I think a flourishing based and flourishing focused interventions of mental health or suicide preventions can teach us how to live. And when we change what we think about mental illnesses, uh, these kind of languages, these linguistic changes can also help us to reduce the stigma. And I think that is what it is, well, what might be very useful for the healthcare workers field as well. Yeah, thank you so much. Wouldn't it be great if uh, all of us in the, in the healthcare professions uh, and people in general, wouldn't it be great if we stopped thinking about self-care as some sort of luxury or a crutch that uh, only weak people need or something like that. I mean, it's uh, 
it's a necessity of life uh, for sure. Um, so you, you, uh, you two being together, you know, bring this uh, wonderful combination of data experience, uh, all kinds of different things. Um, and so I, I want to learn from you. Um, it, it, it seems to me, it feels to me like these problems are getting more prevalent. And I, I don't follow the, the data carefully. I'm not an expert in the area. But it feels like they're becoming more prevalent, both in the general population and in the, in, in the healthcare provider population. Is that just my imagination? Or is there evidence that mental health uh, challenges are, are getting more and more prevalent? I, I felt that at first during COVID. But honestly, I felt it before COVID. And I still feel it now. So what, what do you think about that? Is this, this becoming a bigger deal? Um, I have no statistics to cite for you, so I cannot answer your question. But um, what I what I would like to um, highlight, and I, as Dr. Ja was talking, was you know making me reflect. Um, um, so the type of research I'm um, I'm a medical education researcher and actually study identity and safety related to our identities in the learning environment, um, and. Um, so I'll get to the I'll get to sort of answering your question. Um, so um, the first thing that I would say is the process of becoming a healthcare professional is one of identity formation, um, where you come in with one identity and you leave with often a different identity. You know, like in in, in sort of medicine, physicians, it's coming as a layperson, you leave as a physician, um, and this process of identity formation. One, it involves who we are as people, like coming into medicine, um, and um, and you know our experiences, our histories, etc. And in medicine, there's this because it's so intense. Um, you really become very reliant on your social network, often like within medicine, um, um, and sometimes at sort of the cost of your social network outside of medicine, um, and. As a result, what happens is um, for many people, being a physician, I'm just going to stick with physician, but this could apply to any healthcare professional, becomes so core to one's identity of how they see themselves in the world. And like not being able to be that thing becomes this sort of identity sacrifice that becomes un impossible to conceptualize. Um, and, you know, you all mentioned sort of Cornell, but I was at MIT. It's an institution that also has really struggled with suicides. Um, and um, also when I was at UCSF, that was true as well. And um, uh, I think what happens, I think there is a very significant identity component because we become, we know ourselves as these people who are sort of like academically achieving, who are aligning to work towards like, you know, very like sort of lofty goals, et cetera. Um, and I think many people's mental health is worsened when like, their relationship to the identity becomes like damaged or threatened in some way. And I, and we know like there are people who like, who have died by suicide, like after not matching, you know, and like, um, and also I think there's oftentimes this, for me personally, there's been this inability to um, step away from medicine. You know, I mentioned this default to leave of absence. So that sort of institution is pushing people out. But there's also this personal inside thing where I feel like, you know, I don't want to take a break because if I take a break, then I might not ever be able to like get back in. Um, and so there's so much like important identity dynamics that are happening in this like space. Um, and um, um, first to this idea of like of mental 
um, wellnesses or um, the, 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 the ways in which we benefit or um, the, the, so for me, when I hear that, what I actually think about is the ways in which having mental illness makes people better providers. Um, and, you know, I'm a kidney doctor now and it's crazy how often I get to leverage my mental illness with my patients um, and how powerful it, it has been. And like, you know, there's a journey of learning how to disclose and what to disclose with patients. But like, you know, I had a patient once who attempted suicide in the same way that I did, you know, and, um, and as a result, their kidneys were damaged. And like, um, you know, a few days into their stay, I like disclosed this to them. And they had gone from being very sort of closed down immediately after saying that to like, sort of opening up meaningfully, you know, and, and I guess I'd say like, that's something that like no one will ever measure. But in, in our, in my, con in my research world, we call, we call this agency to serve where people leverage their identities to help patients. Um, but the person who's experiencing this agency, who's, who's sort of showing agency to serve and helping patients, they know that they've helped that person. And so like, I, you know, like, can I give you statistics and prove that this is like actually helpful? No, but like, have I had my own providers do things like this for me? Absolutely. Has it been extremely helpful for me? Absolutely. And that's like in this social network, that's like creating, you know, a little connection to a human. And to me, that's like actually how you fight suicide. It's like when when someone feels, when you feel a, a physical or an emotional connection to a person, like, you know. And so returning to your initial question, what I would say is, I think medicine is changing because historically the narrative was personal and professional are completely separate. Like they should not be in any way, nothing of your personal life should come into medicine. But in reality, first, that was never actually true. That was always happening. But now it's becoming more acceptable that who people are outside the hospital, it, it does bleed with who they are inside the hospital. And actually that might be a good thing. Um, we have to learn how to do it well but like when it's done well, it actually can be really humanizing and really help patient care. And so I bet what's happening is I bet in the past, we just had like doctors who were very angry and mean to people and yelled at people and did all these things. And those were like, and that was mental illness manifesting, but we just didn't call it mental illness. We just said like, this is doctor such and such in the way that they act. And now we have people who are like starting to get treatment for these things and like, you know, like learning like that they're actual diagnoses that when they're really angry, they're, it actually turns out they're just very sad you know, or they were like anxious. And so that, and they were less, you know, and so um, I think we might just be getting cleaner with our language and identifying what's actually happening. And, 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 and also accepting that like personal and professional, like, I think they actually should blend. I think a lot of people, I think a lot of, I think medicine is shifting that way too. Well, they, they do blend whether we want them to or not. And so I, I think it's a, it's a very good point. And to, to your point about uh, uh, sometimes you can't measure a certain thing, um, especially researchers like like both of you and Dr. Shaw, not everything is measurable by uh, you know weights or wavelengths or whatever it is. There's qualitative research. There's all kinds of different things, and uh, these observations, even the anecdotal ones, build and turn into major uh, ways of understanding things that seem cloudy to us at first. Super helpful, um, Dr. Shaw. What do you think about the question? Is this uh, is this set of issues becoming more prevalent for both the general public and for those of us in the healthcare fields? Yeah, um, well, I, I would really um, share some, maybe I can share some statistics, especially I think um, among the suicide rates as well, that um, 
from like the past years, we see that the suicide rate has been increasing, particularly on um, before the COVID, it has been increased significantly, but uh, and then it dropped a little bit in 2020. But when we get the 2021 data, uh, then the suicide rates further increased. And um, to especially for healthcare workers, we, we also find that um, there are increasing suicide rates among the healthcare workers, and that is underscored by the growth of like 3.8 million in 2008 to 6.6 million in 2021, which is the latest data we have. And that coincidence with like aging of the US populations, and also within the healthcare workers, we also find that there are also different uh, different distributions of like this risk, and particularly we find that registered like nurses, health technicians, and healthcare support workers, they themselves uh, even have higher risk of suicide, and then in 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 the data it shows that that is, and then the the increasing rate was not significant for physicians. So we have been really finding that different kinds of like um, healthcare workers have different struggles as well. And I also wanted to mention another part of like these disparities among like within these healthcare workers is that uh, the data shows that within healthcare workers, also females are uh, having higher rates of suicide than the males. And there is so little research, to be honest, on why it happens. And as David alluded, like uh, we need to understand more, and we need to understand, like, for example, maybe do a qualitative research. Or right now, our group are also digging out the profiles of suicide uh, deaths among these uh, different occupations. And um, one of the points that um, maybe distinguish like uh, the risks among these healthcare workers and versus the non-healthcare workers is in terms of like the, the burnout rates, like, and, and that has been really like uh, highlighted in during, especially we know that during the COVID and they are the frontier workers and then the, they have to really dealing with and the balance between like their work related stress as well as their like their the home related stress like um, what we talk about like child care as well so we did find that especially during the covid um, there has been increasing rates of like um, the the suicide risks among these populations so i think that um healthcare workers as a occupational uh, as an occupation and they have their own like unique risks and we need to really think about like the priorities of creating a culture maybe a culture of mental health well-being and how mental health wellness and um, like for, for example there has been like protocols uh, of like on um, vacations like instead of we talk about on um, vacation maybe we need to think about uh, wellness and vacations and also to increase like also to like you know, the intersectionalities like within these healthcare workers especially for females they also uh, maybe feel further in terms of like the different barriers of child cares so we need to give more support for them to be thriving into these professional jobs um, as well as their homes so 
I, I think that the healthcare workers do feel more stress from different levels than the non-healthcare workers. And that reflects particularly among their suicide rates growth. Thank you. You know, one of the one of the really important tools that I think it's important to use when thinking about any public health issue is to look at it through the equity lens, social determinants of health, you know, whatever you want to call it. And um, for a moment, focusing not on the healthcare professionals, but but on the, the, the people we serve, not just the patients, but their families, the, the communities. I don't mean to be, you know, dramatic, but I'm terrified uh, about uh, the many people who don't have access to the internet. And therefore, even though you can have therapy, for example, uh, over the wire, so to speak, they don't have access to broadband and they can't do it. And uh, even in uh, 2023, here in Washington, where we, you know, we fight all the time about everything, we're fighting again about mental health parity and, and we still, we're still not there. We're not even close to being there. And so um, to what extent do you think we're making any progress at all on the health inequity aspect of mental health care, both diagnosis and treatment, um, because other problems that we've looked at in this program and just in general, whatever progress we're making and whatever it is we're talking about tends to lag, sometimes enormously, dramatically, uh, because of social determinants of health, because of lack of access. And in the case of, of mental health, um, I'm sure you both know more about this than I do, but the availability of professionals to help is, is a big, big issue. Roughly half the counties in the U.S. Uh, uh, don't have a single psychiatrist. And of course, much of this care is delivered by other terrific professionals that are not MD psychiatrists. But, but there, are, there are big, big problems in that regard. So tell me your thoughts about the health equity uh, aspects of the, of the battle that we're, that we're fighting. Dr. Shell, maybe you could start this one. Yeah, I'd love to share, like, um, I have been studying a lot, uh, like focusing on health disparities and promoting equities in different, uh, like, especially in, in mental health and suicide preventions that one of um, our previous research from an epidemiological perspective really shows that particularly for there are racial and sex and and also sexual and gender minorities that uh, this population is really facing like higher rates of suicide uh, death, suicide ideation and suicide attempts uh, than their like their peers. And um, from my research, I also advocated a lot about like uh, studying suicide, studying mental health disparities from a social determinants of health perspective, because um, like uh, because as as we find that many of these um, inaccessibilities to healthcare or like why a certain populations has been systematically always having higher suicide rates. It's not just because of like the, indiv the individual wills, but it is a system levels issues that we need to. And also uh, from uh, my perspective, it is not just about healthcare. 
like healthcare is important in terms of like we need to advocate and we did find that for people living in healthcare like health service like shortage health uh, areas they have like a higher rates of suicide and also we find that in, in terms of rural versus urban populations like the rural and remote areas where there's healthcare resources hospitals uh, psychiatric hospitals and psychiatrists like when when there is a lacking of this professional support there are uh, like increasing rates of suicide showing in this data at the same time um, there are also non-health related uh, like issues and particularly one of these pub uh, publications we just published this this, uh, this week in the JAMAT uh, pediatrics we did find that particularly for like even kids for the youth populations uh, if we think about social terms of health we need to think it uh, from a, a more like broad perspective and and we need to not only think about healthcare, but also think about like education, about uh, physical physical infrastructure, natural environment, about their socioeconomic status, their social context, whether they are living in a place that is safe or like having drugs sales or not. And those different kind of environmental variables are equally important as the healthcare settings as well. And we did find that, um, for, for example, when children are living in the poverty and socioeconomically deprived areas, they also have like higher rates of mental illnesses and suicide attempts. And that is exactly, I, I think, um, that is no that have no difference in terms of like for for people who are older uh, like adults or moving to um, different kind of occupations like the place you live um, like characterized by the social terms of health really shaped it like in terms of the abilities accessibilities affordabilities of healthcare and also the norms the social norms or if there is bias discriminations in the environment that would implicitly affect the mental health so i think that um, we have been seeing increasing amounts of the research started to understand not only at individual levels, not only just studying how like psychiatric illnesses is associated with suicide risks among like healthcare workers, but we also find that um, like there are uh, increasing emphasizes on uh, social terms of health and i think like for example the natural uh, the, the national institute of health they are also emphasizing more uh, right now on setting on uh, the social terms of health uh, as the goals and the healthy people 2030 also includes this sdoh like social terms of health to target on how do we improve the conditions that people live, people grow, they walk, um, and um, to improve the healthcare outcomes. And also uh, another note is about like uh, in 
besides the quantity of healthcare, we also wanted to improve the quality of healthcare. And that would in, include the array of like culturally tailored um, mental health uh, like interventions as well. So I think thinking about mental health from a social terms of perspective, it is actually very important. And the field is started to picking it up, but we do need more research in this area. Thank you. Dr. Bullock, your observations from your patients and your experiences? Yes. The, um, I completely agree with Dr. Chow. Um, the, um, I think what, um, what this topic brings up for me is the, the role of the physician or health professional in um, advocacy or sort of broader structural change because you know if people don't have housing like they're not going to go to therapy like it's like like that like you know or it would be it's much more challenging you know if people don't have access to food you know like these very core like basic fundamentals um um where like you know i very much am of the like for many sort of things in society like housing is the cure um um and I think this becomes interesting because when you look then at physicians who arguably like don't have like the same, they may have grown up in certain social constraints, but typically as once they're employed, don't have the same sort of needs that a lot of our patients do. Um, um, you know, then you, then there's sort of a question like, so what's happening in these populations? Because basically what everyone says, you know, physicians, we're a, we're a very socioeconomically privileged group. Um, and, you know, the suicide rate in physicians is remarkably high considering, like, if you look at the other social terms of health, we're, like, we just, like, don't represent, like, our patient population, which is much, much more privileged. Um, and then, I, you know, I think then this, like, I think there is this human need for, like, belonging and safety and you know all these other things and like sleep um and those things can get, get compromised by um you know within medicine um um but yeah so i so one i think there's some, there's obviously a lot of interesting sort of academic things to think about but things also have sort of very practical relevance because mental illness is it does not discriminate it impacts everyone it doesn't matter how wealthy or privileged you are you know Obviously, there are some risk factors that are related to, you know, one sort of social, socioeconomic status, but, um, but anyone can have mental illness. Um, uh, yeah, I guess I'll just stop there. Yeah, this is um, so good to be able to get to know you, both of you, and to listen to you. It makes me more optimistic about the future in an area where I really haven't been very optimistic because um, younger people people who are, uh, you know, uh, devoting some aspect of their thinking and energy to this just just makes me feel more more optimistic. And I, I really appreciate your wisdom, your sharing, and uh, your, your willingness to come on Beyond the White Coat. Now we're going to call our producer back for a little uh, ending segment. Uh, Rachel, over to you. Thank you, David. Um, thank you guys for this very enlightening conversation. We are gonna switch gears a little bit. And like I promised you, we always end with a fun question. So 
It is now time for our favorite segment, which we like to call prescription for relaxation. Um, I think it's very appropriate for this conversation because we know that life is challenging and we all have those really hard times where it can be really hard to find our joy and, and find the things that lift us up. So we'd like to ask you, our guests, tell us what your prescription for relaxation is for us this week. And um, I'll give you guys a second to think and I'll pick on David first. <laughs> David, what is your prescription for the week? So uh, our listeners know by now that my prescription always has to do with my dreams of being a successful musician, which never came through. Behind me in my office over there is a little portable recording and composition area. And so um, my prescription for this uh, week's uh, relaxation is to allow yourself to dream. And I sometimes dream that uh, somehow, maybe even during recording of Beyond the White Coat, some famous act, you know, will, will break through and call me on my phone and say, we want to take you away from all this and want you to go on tour with us. And so dreaming is my prescription for relaxation for this week. Back to you, Rachel. Thank you so much, David. Um, Dr. Chow, what is your prescription for us this week? Um, my prescription would be a habit that I, always, I have been keeping for years is journalism, uh, journaling. Uh, I, I really like uh, waking up and then every day I think uh, the first questions that I always ask myself is that, uh, what are you grateful for? Because I think that um, everyone feels a lot of stress, and uh, you cannot compare always compare yourself to the others. But uh, the most important thing is about you. What do you feel, and what do you feel grateful for? And I feel like uh, over the years, just since I started this habit, it really makes me happier because I realize that wow, I have a lot of love in my in my world and I just need to uh, focus on this and also focusing on doing this job that I really like, the research I really like and to support the others. And I think sharing is also an important, uh, maybe another prescription if I can, uh, that uh, sharing uh, love, sharing like what you have and sharing and giving love to the others is also an important part because later on you will feel that this gratefulness will last longer than anything else. That's such a great prescription. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Bullock, what would you prescribe to us this week? So I have a book. This recently became my new favorite book of all time. So this is like, in my old one has been for like a very, very long time. It's my favorite. Um, it's called Faces at the Bottom of the Well by Derek Bell. Um, and it's, it's, I will caveat that this is not really like a, it talks a lot, racism is a very sort of big part of the book. And it's sort of, it's this kind of like historical fiction and it plays with these little stories of like sort of examining American society and sort of with this lens focusing kind of on racism. And so it sounds very heavy, but it's actually a very thought provoking book that really like tests sort of the bounds of like society in your head as you're reading. And it's just this really fun, like, I don't know. I, th I just think it's a great, um, I would recommend that anyone read it. You may, I think you will, ever, you will have many different feelings, but I think it's a very thought provoking one. 
I'll get that book today, this, this very day. Uh, this is so great. Um, before Rachel closes us, I just want to thank you, too, for your incredible insights and for all that you're doing. Uh, it's really been an honor. Thank you both for joining us. We really appreciate your time and your thoughtful answers. Thank you, as always, to David for hosting. Um, and thank you to all of our listeners. Beyond the White Coat is hosted by David J. Scorton, and our executive producer is Zania McClendon. Our project manager is Brittany Loca. This episode was produced by Rachel Bunn and edited and engineered by Laura Zelaya. Elena Marisciano is our copy editor, and D'Angelo Powell made all of our graphics. Our sound design is by D'Angelo Powell and David J. Scorton. Don't give up on your music dreams yet, David. And Aaron Dillard provided additional support for this episode. We will be back in a few weeks with another Ask an Expert mini episode featuring one of our wonderful AAMC experts. Thank you for listening.